If you have a Bible, and I hope you do, we're going to open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and we're going to begin our time together in verse number 23. Uh, Most of your Bibles probably have a break in the passage from verse 22 to 23, uh, and uh, there's a heading above that verse, probably, and if you'll notice, that passage goes all the way down to verse number 1 of chapter 11. Now, if you have a Bible that doesn't have the headings, those are man-made, so those are man-inserted, not a big deal that they're there, but it does kind of help understand the different trains of thought that the biblical author authors had and, and as the Spirit led them. Uh, and, and there's natural breaks in the passages, which is why those were inserted by the English editors. Uh, but I make a point because verse 23 brings us all the way down to verse number one of chapter 11. And then you don't often find a chapter split up like that, where the first verse is with the previous chapter and then the next verse is something new. That's important. Uh, and that's why we are studying this passage, these passages together. We can't jump into chapter 11 um, because the first verse of chapter 11 is anchored to, tethered to, uh, chapter 10, verses 23 through the end. So I wanted to make that note up front, and hopefully that'll make sense as we study. But tonight, we're going to jump back in to our 1 Corinthians study with uh, perhaps the most difficult passage in the whole book, and maybe one of the most difficult passages uh, to uh, wrap our minds and our arms around in the whole Bible. And and that's saying a lot, because the Bible's full of not passages that are impossible to understand, but passages that just have a lot of depth to them um, and uh, require a lot of nuance and a lot of uh, unpacking to kind of figure out what they are saying to us. And, and God forbid we ever leave more confused than, than maybe we came in as. So I want to make sure that we, we come out of here with uh, a, a very clear mind and let God speak to us from uh, through his spirit. So I, I believe that we'll, we'll, we'll get that tonight. Um, and again, 1 Corinthians has had a, had a slew of chapters that have been challenging to, to process. Uh, remember chapters 5, 6, and 7. We're all about sexuality, which we'll touch on a little bit again tonight, but in a different way. Uh, We talked about marriage and remarriage and and abstaining from marriage. And we talked about the different kinds of sexual sins that, 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 that were in the world then that are still in the world now. Um, and uh, we, we, we handled that with as much grace as we could, but also with the very clarifying truth that God's Word gives us. Uh, in a few weeks, we're going to have a whole discussion about, about spiritual gifts and the gifts of tongues and, and how, that invo- how that has a place or does it have a place in worship. So uh, 1 Corinthians is full of challenging passages that are often just skipped by, skipped over or passed over. Uh, but we don't want to dodge any passage in the Bible. We want to get all of it and, and learn all of it and learn from it all of it. So I think you'll at least get your money's worth out of me the next couple of weeks, right? Um, or hopefully. Uh, tonight's main focus will be on chapter 11, uh, again, but with a prelude from chapter 10. And, and the, we're going to wade back into to a discussion about sexuality, specifically about gender, um, about gender identity and gender roles uh, in the kingdom of God for the glory of God. So that's going to come back into play in the second half of the message, but I want to make sure you kind of understand where we're going tonight. Gender identity, as in men and women, uniquely bearing the image of God, but also having a unique role in the kingdom of God for the glory of God. So we'll talk about that. Um, We're actually going to begin our time, though, again in chapter 10, um, because as most literature uh, uh, suggests, uh, one chapter leads to the other, and and we don't really know what's going on in this chapter unless we know what was going on in the previous chapter. And it's been about six weeks since we were here around this book. So I think it's important that we back up a little bit and um, we uh, reprocess what verse 23 through the end is talking about. So uh, I want to read this passage first, and then we'll break it down. It may sound familiar because Paul has beat this drum a lot so far in 1 Corinthians, and it's very similar to some of the themes from Romans. Um, But 
that should tell you that it's very important, right? Um, if you want to know why someone repeats themselves, either they don't have much to say or what they have to say is very important. Um, needless to say, Paul had a lot to say, yet he did repeat himself on a certain few issues, and this is one of them. So verse 23, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful or not all things are expedient. All things are lawful for me, but not all things edify. Now that's a big, that's an important word for tonight. All things are lawful for me, as in I can do whatever I want to do, but I don't, maybe I shouldn't do whatever I want to do. I think that's what he's saying. Let no one seek his own good or gain or interest, Eat, but each one the other's well-being. That's a pretty clear statement, and that sounds familiar with the New Testament, doesn't it? Eat whatever is sold in the meat market, asking no questions for conscience' sake. For the earth is the Lord's in all its fullness. If any of those who do not believe invites you to dinner and you desire to go, eat whatever is said before you, asking no question for conscience' sake. But if anyone says to you, this was, of, this was offered to idols, do not eat it for the sake of the one who told you and for the conscience' sake. For the earth is the Lord's in all of its fullness. Conscience, I say, not your own, but that of the other. And this is really his whole point, verse 29. For why is my liberty judged by another man's conscience? And maybe you would say that. Why am I beholden to someone else's opinions or beliefs or sensitivity? 30. But if I partake with thanks, why am I evil spoken of for the food over which I gave thanks? Again, Paul's saying if, if it's me, if I don't have the same bother that they have, what is it a big deal for me to do what I feel good about doing? 31. Therefore, whatever or whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And he explains to us how we might do all to the glory of God. Verse 32, give no offense either to the Jews or to the Greeks or to the church of God. So regardless of what culture you're dealing with, let's not go out of our way to offend someone or be offensive to someone, particularly to damage their conscience is what he's saying. He's not saying not be truthful. He's saying do things that are unnecessary or not necessary to the point that you offend someone. Verse 33, just as I also please all men in all things or seek to please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit or my own gain, but the profit of many that they may be Saved. I think if you could bottle down Paul's ministry down, if you, could, if you could find the thesis of Paul's ministry, it's right there in that passage. But chapter 11, verse 1 is how he ends it. Imitate me, just as I also imitate Christ. Follow me as I follow the Lord. So he tells us how he follows God, and he tells us that we should do like he does. Now, Verse 23 is essential. Essentially, it's Paul's thesis for this book and again for his ministry. Uh, remember, this book is about uh, how we fit into the body of Christ, specifically how we all are a part of the body of Christ and how we fit into his body and how we function as members of his body. With our joining to the body of Christ comes new desires and new level of accountability to one another. Now that we are attached to something much more glorious and with much higher stakes than our own fragile temporary bodies, 1 Corinthians has taught us that we confess that our focus 
is on what builds up his body and glorifies his name and is good for his people. Verse 23 says, all things are lawful, but not all things build up. That's what edify means. Not all things are helpful or are expedient or beneficial to each other. And and this sounds pretty obvious, but there's two reasons why this isn't always so easy to buy into. There's two reasons why you and me, as holy as we may be and as devoted as we may be, there's two reasons why it's always going to be difficult for us to have this attitude that, hey, I am about what builds up the body of Christ, as in I'm thinking about what glorifies God and what's good for his people, that my first passion and my first priority isn't me. There's a reason, there's two reasons why that is not easy for any of you and for any of us, me included. When Paul says, hey, I have made a decision that just because I can do it doesn't mean I will do it. Just because I have a right to do it doesn't mean I'm going to do it because I'm not living for me. I'm living for others and for God's glory, which is found through the doing the good for other people. But again, but there's, there's two reasons why that is not easy for you. And maybe you know this, maybe you don't want to admit this, but I'm going to admit this about myself, and I think you can agree that this is true about all of us. Number one, we are by nature a stubborn, selfish people. Old Testament, God told Moses that you are a stiff-necked people. That means I'm stubborn and I don't want to move my neck when I shouldn't move my neck because usually there's danger coming our way and we don't want to look. We are a stubborn and selfish people. And and again, I I know Paul said, hey, don't offend people, but sometimes the truth, he's not saying don't be truthful. So I know that might be offensive, right? That we are, that I don't want to be called stubborn or selfish, but come on, let's just be honest. We are a stubborn and selfish people. We want our way and we don't really care about anybody else's way but ourselves. Now, maybe that's not as, maybe that's a little bit blunt, but I think you'll agree that we are a stubborn and selfish people. I know that's harsh. Sometimes you have to state the truth as clear and blunt as can be, though. Uh, but come on, we know, you know how stubborn you are. You, you know how stubborn the people that you live with are, too. But, but come on, let's just look in the mirror for a minute. You know how stubborn you are, and, and you know how selfish you are by nature. And again, that's natural. That's natural. Think about this, though. What is the one thing that works against your selfishness? As in, what's the one thing that, that softens your heart and that causes you to think about somebody beside you? What is the one thing that chips away at our selfishness? It's love, right? That the one thing that makes us be a little bit more aware of someone besides ourselves or a whole lot aware of someone besides ourselves, the one thing that chips away at our stubborn, selfish nature is when we love someone, right? When we fall in love for someone, when we give love to someone, when we love our wives or our husband or our children or our family, we love someone, we give a little, right? When you love someone, you bend a little. When you love someone, you begin to naturally consider them before you consider yourself. Come on, you did all that when you, when you first got married, when you, when you fell in love, when you had kids. All of a sudden you realized that, hey, I'm not number one anymore. And it wasn't because you did it out of obligation. You did it out of love. By all means, when we come to love God and love his people, the supernatural transformation we've experienced is causing us to consider God and others before we consider ourselves. And again, in our flesh, even Christians, even as Christians in our flesh, that is not our first instinct. Paul is trying to remind us of our new and Christian instinct, though. But again, the number one reason why it's not easy is that we're by nature stubborn and selfish, but there's a number two reason as well. 
The number true reason is that it's hard for us to accept or process uh, that, that, that we are meant to consider others above ourselves is because the gospel is all about reminding us that we are free from laws and now that we are in Christ, we are under grace. So now that someone's, Paul, Paul has been teaching this throughout the, the New Testament, you are not under law anymore. No one can tell you what you got to do because you are free from law. You are f- under grace. But, but all of a sudden he's saying, well, actually, <laughs> well, why are you telling me I got to do this whenever you just told me I didn't have to listen to anybody? Honestly, that's just our flesh trying to corrupt the grace that God has given us. Grace, and you know this, we know this, grace doesn't give us a license to be more selfish, of course not. It's the, it's the transforming power of God that moves our hearts to enable us and to, to serve him. So it's not a, a thing of duty or obligation, but a delight and a joy of our hearts that wants to serve him. Now that delight and that joy is not the preacher breathing down your neck or any other Christian inspecting you. It's the Holy Spirit of God moving you in his direction. That's what the grace of God is doing. It's moving you. It's under his guidance and his care that you realize I'm not bound by law anymore. I don't have to do a certain amount of good things to please God. But because I am in Christ and because I'm under his grace, I genuinely want to honor him. And because I now have love for him and love for his people, that love is driving me to put him in them first. It's like this. There's not a law that says you have to attend or give or do or serve, but there's a grace that moves us to do all those things and more. There's a difference. You can tell a lot about a preacher who, or anybody who handles God's word by how they present this. If they don't have the confidence in God's grace, they'll emphasize that you have to and angle or else. But if they trust that God's grace it can transform and they trust that God's grace can move us, they'll give his spirit the place and the space to do that as they preach the word. And that's what Paul is doing here. Paul, as the preacher, he's declaring God's word. He's not demanding anyone do anything. He's just explaining why, as believers, we should do certain things under this new nature. Does that make sense? Verse 24, he puts it very clearly, though. Let no one seek his own, but each one the other's well-being. I know that all things are lawful for me. I know I can do whatever I want to do, as in I'm not, I, don't, I don't have to do anything for you or for them. But Paul says, but come on, you're under God's grace. You're moved by his spirit. You're, under, you're in his body. So let us not seek our own selfish ambition, but let us seek the good and the gain of others. And we did a whole message on this from chapter 8 about the meat market and how people were buying meat and it was offensive to some and not offensive to others. And some said, get over it. And some said, hey, that's a big deal because they were eating meat that was honored, that was sacrificed to Zeus. And Paul says, yeah, Zeus isn't real, but it, it, it hurts people's conscience. So maybe you should just avoid it. And he even said, I would become a vegan if it meant not offending someone. And, and we thought, hey, that's crazy, Paul. Why would you give up meat whenever it's their problem? But we saw how Paul was so dedicated and devoted to the good of the other people, right? Uh, down in verse 31 through chapter one, chapter 11, verse 1, he bulls it all down. Let's read those again. Whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. And he explains to us how we glorify God. Give no offense to either to Jews or Greeks or to the church, just as I please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit or gain of many that they may be saved. So he's not just considering the saved people, he's considering the unsaved people. 
And then he, then here's the stinger. Imitate me as I imitate Jesus. She said, well, Paul, I mean, is this what Jesus would do? He says, y'all want to go there? He says, let's go there. Paul is not saying in verse number 33, though, he is not saying that he is trying to be a people pleaser like we think of people pleasers who are always in the need of other people's approval. It's not what he's saying. He's not saying that he needs their approval, but he is saying he wants to be a blessing to people, not a stumbling block. Do you see that? That he wants to be a blessing to people so they may see Jesus in him. He doesn't want to get in the way of people in Jesus. And you can tell a lot about people's hearts. You can tell a lot about your own heart and how passionate you are about letting Jesus shine through you. If you don't care about whether Jesus comes through you or not, it might expose just how close to God you actually, are, actually aren't, right? That's what it comes down to every single day. Paul says, I am not about pleasing myself. I'm about pleasing people so that I may bless them or show them the blessing of God through me. And that's what it comes down to, these two things. How deeply rooted are our hearts in Jesus? How clear is he on display through our lives? If we are rooted in Jesus, then we will have a passion for other people and we will have a display of Jesus in our hearts. We should be occupied by this thought every single day. Do people see Jesus in me? Every Christian, imagine the world. I know this is idealistic of me, but I do this a lot, don't I? Imagine a world where every Christian is concerned about this one thing. Do people see Jesus in my heart? If we are filling our hearts with Jesus and showing him through our lives, then we really have done all we can do and all that's required of us. And come on, you know what your motives are. I, I don't know what your motives are. You don't know what my motives are. But we know our own motives, don't we? Paul says in verse 33, we should be most concerned with are we being a blessing to others? Can they see Jesus in us? Or do they just see selfishness and stubbornness? He bids us to follow this same path. Now, let's just state the obvious. This really isn't the way most Christians live, is it? I mean, of course, it's not the way most people live, but people, we're not, we're not worried about people, we're worried about Christians. This isn't how most of us live, is it? And I'm not trying to be holier than thou. This is how I live all the time. But it should be. It should be. It should be how you live. It should be how we live. Every follower of Jesus. And listen, this is how we'll be judged in heaven. We will not be judged by how much we attended or how much we gave, how well we taught, how well we sing, how good we dressed, how much we impressed. We will be judged on this one count. Did we imitate Jesus in his other's first lifestyle? That's the one thing that God's going to hold us accountable to. Did we imitate Jesus? You can put everything else. You can categorize everything else under this one line. Did we imitate Jesus in putting others first? And before you say, people make that so hard, Justin. I mean, it's really hard to put everybody before me. I mean, maybe my mom or my dad or my husband or my wife or my kids. Even that's not easy. But everybody? Before you say that, I, 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 know what, I know how that goes. We think, well, man, we've got all these exceptions. Think about how hard people made it for Jesus to put them first. What does the Bible say about 
the closest friends and followers of Jesus, what does it say about how they treated him on the most crucial night of his life? Matthew 26. Then all the disciples left him and fled. The guy writing the book was one of them. (laughs) All of them. Matthew, Peter, James, John, everybody. They left him and they fled. And yet who did Jesus have on his mind? Them all. But that wasn't all he had on his mind. That isn't all who he had on his mind, was it? Well, who, what about the other people? The people that were actively working against him. What about them? Well, when Pilate asked them, hey, what do you want me to do with Jesus? They all said, let him be crucified. So all the disciples and all of the crowds and what was on Jesus' mind, who was on Jesus' mind? All of them. I know that's a high bar, but I also know that Jesus left that high throne and came to your heart. So that means it's possible for us to get here, isn't it? And Paul's saying, hey, I want you to imitate me as I imitate Jesus because this is what we're going to be judged by. And what do verses 10, 33 through 11, 1 tell us about Jesus? In spite of all who forsook him and cried out against him, he still sought the gain of those who only added pain to his life. I mean, talk about a New Year's resolution. I mean, maybe we need to add one to our list. Listen, is the Bible telling us to love our enemies? Of course. But the main message is that we would love those who are placed in our lives. Listen, we're, we're not Jesus on trial. We're not Jesus being forsaken by people and being crucified. But we are like Jesus in a world where people are not always going to work as we wish they would or be on the same page as we wish they would. Yet we are still called to love them. Yeah, they might give us a headache. Yeah, they might be different than us. But think about what Jesus did. When Paul says, do it all for the glory of God, he explains to us in verse 24, he explains to us in verse verse 33, what does he mean by glorifying God? He means that God is glorified when his body is edified, when his body is built up. And to build up his body means you might have to say no to your body. You see that? That's why he says all things are lawful, but not all things edify. And and he says in verse 33, I'm not just talking about those who are a part of the body. I'm talking about those who may yet be a part of his body. As he says, those who are not yet saved. So some people will push their glasses up and say, well, this is really only talking about Christians loving other Christians. But Paul says, whoa, 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 whoa. Jesus said, if you love those who love you, what good is that? Even sinners do that. So don't let anybody ever stand in the pulpit and say, well, Christians only have to love people that are like them. That's not the gospel. The gospel is love people who are most unlike you. That is what glorifies God. If we have our conscience set to any other truth, then our conscience are wired by the wrong thing. And that's unfortunate because a lot of us, a lot of people by religion has been taught is something different. Now, it sounds like we've heard this message a lot lately. It's because we read a lot of the New Testament. We read a lot of God's word and the the gospels and the teachings of Paul and Peter and James and John all make this very clear. And every Old Testament lesson comes through the New Testament filter. This is the Christian worldview. And this is what we are held accountable to. Paul wants you, he wants us to be equipped and effective as members of the church of 
of the church of Jesus Christ. Follow me as I follow Jesus. What does following Jesus look like? Verse 23 through 11.1. That's what following Jesus looks like, putting others first. We've heard that sermon again, again, again. I should be pretty good at preaching it because I preach it a lot. And it's not because I think I'm better than everybody else. It's because that's what the Bible teaches, right? Woe unto us if we don't make this our heart's passion. My job as a pastor is to make sure you can tell I'm following Jesus, so you should follow him as well. God forbid I be following any other agenda, and the same is true for every Christian. Now, with that in mind, a message we've heard so much leads us to a message we probably haven't heard very much, or maybe at all, and that's going to be the last part of our message in in the next 10 minutes or so. But Paul is going to return to a specific topic, but it's still couched in this thesis. This thesis that God is glorified when his body is edified. This is still what his motive is in this next chapter. What we're going to do, though, in closing is read the first half of this next chapter, and I'm going to break it down for you, what I believe his message is to us. And I promise you, I know it might be, you might start hearing things about head coverings and shaving your head and think, what in the world is he talking about? We'll break it down as simply as we can. Um, and we'll highlight a few verses before we go. But again, it's all under this banner. God is glorified when his body is edified, and how you play a role in that is important. Chapters 11, verse number 2 through 16. Now I praise you, or I applaud you, brethren, that you remember me in all things and keep your traditions just as I delivered them to you. So he's going to talk to them about something that's more his opinion than it is God's inspiration, yet he believes it's couched in godly convictions. And he'll say that for as much. But I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Every man praying or prophesying or teaching, having his head covered, dishonors his head. And every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. For that is one and the same as if her head was shaved. Now, he's using a lot of different symbols here. He's talking about a head covering, a physical head covering. He's talking about the hair on a man or woman. So don't get too lost in that. I'll explain it. For if a woman is not covered, let her also be shorn or shaved. But if it is shameful for a woman to be shorn or shaved, let her be covered. And he's trying to say, don't go against what nature says you should, should do. And again, he's talking spiritually here. We'll talk about that. For a man indeed ought not to cover his head, since he is the image of the glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man is not from woman, but woman from man. Nor was man created from the woman, for the woman, but woman for the man. For this reason, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. We'll explain that too. Verse 11, nevertheless, neither is man independent of woman nor woman independent of man in the Lord. For as the woman came from man, even so also the man comes through woman. But all things are from God. Judge among yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair or a covering, it is a dishonor to him? But if a woman who has long hair is a glory to her, for her hair is given to her for her covering. But if anyone seems to be contentious, we have no such custom, as in we don't argue. Lord, if the church would follow that. If this causes a big fight in the church, we don't fight. Remember that. We don't argue. We don't get upset at each other and get angry and throw things and say, but I believe and you believe. He says, we don't do that. Neither do any churches do that. So let's just not entertain that and let it get that far. But nonetheless, he says, I believe this is important. 
So I think it's important that we talk about it too. I want to make a note, make a mention here, first off of verse number 10, when he says, because of the angels, here's the deal. This chapter is about the church worshiping God and serving God in the way, in the way that it should. The angels in heaven have a one uh, one track mind. It's worship God. Go read Isaiah 6. They sing holy, holy, holy all day long, 24, 7, 365. They never stop worshiping. And that's our standard. That's, our, that's what we're measured against. If the angels are worshiping God and doing what they're called to do, we ought to as well. So keep that in mind. Now, essentially, here's what this chapter is about. Paul was responding to issues that are present in the Corinthian church, offering inspiration from God in most cases, but also offering his own opinions in, in some cases. Remember back in chapter 7, he said, hey, I don't think you should get married at all because you can be devoted to God. But he says, hey, that's not God. That's my opinion, which I think is pretty important, but not as important as God's. That we don't read a lot of that in the Bible, and we talk, don't talk about that a lot from the Bible because most of the Bible is cut and dry, black and white, with God's truth being plain and, and obvious. But there's a couple of subjects where it's not really doctrinal or not really theological, where Paul or Moses in the Old Testament says, hey, this is what I think, but again, I don't want to cause a big problem, so hey, if you disagree, that's fine. I'll, I believe you'll work it out, and, and I believe you'll let God t show you the right way, but I don't want to cause a big drama and cause a big split, so let's just figure out how to love each other and, and get through this. So, Paul makes it clear in the last verse, in verse 16, that he's not trying to call strife and division. But you might respond, well, Paul, if you didn't want to call strife and division, why'd you say all this? Because <laughs> it makes me have questions. Well, that's important that we answer those questions. Um, I think it's because he believes that God is able to take this and work on our hearts, but he needs to give us room to figure it out. So, let me state a few things that this chapter is inspired by, and then we'll get into the specifics. First, this chapter is about gender identity and that's the thing that God very much cares about. That men and women are created different from one another. That's a hard, for some, for some reason, that's not always understood in our world today, but that's the Bible's truth, right? Men and women are different. Both are designed to complement one another and complete one another and together bring glory to God through mutual respect and submission to one another. This is more relevant than ever in today's world because people wonder out loud, well, is gender a real thing? But the Bible makes it very clear that gender is a sacred thing. Marriage is a sacred thing. Genesis 1, 27 tells us that creation happened like this. God created man or humanity in his image. In the image of God, he created humanity. Male and female, he created them. So both man and woman have a unique impression of the, of the image of God that together we tell the whole story and the full glory. As if the mirror didn't say it, obviously, on top of plenty other biological and anatomical reasons, God's design of men and women, as uniquely and differently as we are, that paints a picture of God's glory. And Psalm 139 tells us that, that David says, you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made that we are the work of God. So in this text, Paul gives his thoughts on an issue that is being discussed and debated at Corinth. And that is the function of men and women in a church and within a church service and within a, within a church uh, community, how crucial fulfilling these roles are in reflecting and completing God's glory, reflecting God's complete glory. And this leads Paul into discussing the differences of men and women visually and how that points to the differences, the different roles and complementary correlation between men and women in the makeup of the church. Now, let me make this clear. Paul is not meddling into a discussion about how women and men should wear their hair. That's not the point of this chapter. 
His sermon is not about how men should look and women should look. He uses the natural visual distinctions between men and women to point to how they are meant to serve God in unique ways, yet complement each other in glorifying God and building up the church. Now, if you read the next half of this chapter, Paul talks about something else that's symbolic, the Lord's Supper, how the wine represents the blood, how the uh, bread represents the body. So it's important that we understand in this, this whole chapter, Paul is talking about symbols, how the hair is a symbol of something spiritual, how the bread and the juice is a symbol of something spiritual. I think that helps us understand what he's really getting at here. A few things I want to make a point of before we go. Verse 3. He says, I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ. The head of woman is the man and the head of Christ is God. Now he tells us that, that marriage, marriage is a triune relationship. That there's God or there's Jesus, there's man and there's woman. And you probably recognize that a triune relationship is also representing God, right? The Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And what do you know about the Father, Son, and the Spirit? They are three persons, but they're one God. They are equal to one another in divinity, but they are subordinate to one another in their practice, as in they serve one another even though they are equal to one another. The Spirit served the Son who served the Father. The Father served the Son who served the Spirit. This is what Paul wants us to know about marriage and relationships and how they relate to the church. That men and women are equal yet they are subordinate to one another in unique ways. And then throw Jesus in there. The Bible calls us joint heirs of Jesus. So we are on, he says, hey, I brought y'all up to my level in terms of children of God, yet we are here to serve one another. The problem at Corinth is people wanted to come to church and leave their relationship outside and not deal with the accountability they have as men and women, specifically as married men and women, but also just across the gender spectrum. And this is so unbelievable, but it still happens. So many people, and again, I, I know this is sensitive, but it's got to be said. So many Christians who are married act as if they are not accountable for their partners. As in, hey, I'm a man, I'm, I'm, I'm married, but hey, I don't, it's not, that's her deal. That's my wife's deal, and let her answer for that. The Bible says that's not how it works in a marriage. That a man and a woman answer together. Not separately. And you say, well, I just can't do anything with them. You better figure out what to do with them. Because you answer to God as a couple now, not as individuals. Listen to what Peter says. This is a whole other sermon, but I got to show it to you. Peter says, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. Show honor to the woman as the weaker vessel since they are heirs with you, as in equals with you, so that your prayers may not be hindered. As in God is not going to listen to your prayers if you don't take your joint, you're, you're being joined to your wife as serious as he does. That God hears you together, not separate. You can separate everything else in your life, but you cannot separate your souls. One of the most underpreached verses in the Bible that would rock the world if it was shouted like it should be. Listen, I love you. If you come alone or if your relationship with your spouse is ice cold when it comes to your faith, but that doesn't mean this isn't true. God understands what you're going through, but it doesn't mean he doesn't want to help you figure out how to make it right. We're too stubborn to accept his help. We don't want to deal with the awkwardness of confronting it all. My heart goes out to the person who believes alone or serves alone. But God wants us to come together 
And that's the point of a man and woman not pray. He says a woman cannot pray without her head covered. The head covered is a symbol of her husband being there with her. A man praying with his head covered, with head uncovered, as in praying as if his wife is not important. As in we come together, we, are, we serve together. We are a couple. We are one as men and women if we're married. But also in terms of men and women in the church, that we respect those roles that God has established as men to lead and women to support let me make this very clear. The head covering is a symbol for a wife leaning on her husband and the husband taking responsibility for his wife. Paul tells wives not to worship with their head uncovered as in apart from their spiritually united hearts with their husband. And he tells husbands not to disregard their spiritual roles as leaders in their family. He says in verse 11, man is not independent of woman and woman is not independent of man. He's talking about marriage there that we are held accountable to one another. And that's where he alludes to the real life case of a woman and man's presentation as in the natural way we wear our hair. And he says that you can't disregard by nature what nature says you are. So you can't disregard what spiritual truth there is about your gender as well. If you disregard your spiritual aspect of your gender, then we are basically disregarding our gender altogether. Men, we can check all the boxes of manhood when it comes to appearance and taking care of our families. But if we disregard our role as spiritual leaders, we're just as guilty as betraying our identity. And the same goes for women. Do you see how serious this is for a church? It's important that married people understand there's a sacred role that they play and that men and women individually and whether you're divorced or unmarried or, or, or you know, whatever relationship you is, that you as a man still have this sacred role as being a leader and you as a woman have this sacred role as understanding how God has created all things and how you play a role in supporting and serving and completing the picture of God. Now Paul says in verse 16, hey, I didn't say this to cause a fight because I know this is gonna elicit a lot of different opinions. But I want to make this very clear. If we want to showcase biblical manhood and biblical womanhood to the world, it starts with how we manage our marriages and how we serve the church as men and women. That's why men are called to lead the church and women are, in the scriptures, forbid to pastor, to present the picture as God inspired it. That men would have the burden to bear the glory of God as they serve Jesus, enabling women to glorify God in their own unique way, supporting them along the way. But Paul's making it very clear to Corinth that if you don't model this in your marriages, how is this ever going to work outside of those bubbles from men and women in general? It's not going to, that's what he's saying. Now church, circle back to our opening discussion. How can we ignore this if we truly love each other and want to show God's love to the lost world? No wonder the world is so confused about gender and sexuality. When the church is laid down on the job when it comes to showcasing what God's intent and design and glory is all about. Ultimately, it all comes down to how we submit to Jesus and each other. You're familiar with Ephesians 6, Ephesians 5, where Paul talks to wives and husbands. But before he ever gets to that, he says in Ephesians 5, 21, submit to one another in the fear of God. Then he says, wives, submit to your husbands. Then he says, husbands, lay down your lives for your wives, just like Jesus did for the church. So our goal is to edify one another, that women 
Pursue God's design of your life. Pursue God's unique design for you. And you play an important, essential, sacred role in completing the picture of God's glory in every church. And men, realize the burden on your shoulders as the image bearers of God, as the one God is called to lead and make an example for not just women and children, but for the whole world that's looking. Our goal is to edify one another, build up one another. It starts with every man and woman stepping up into their role as reflecting Jesus and his church. Now, Paul says we can ignore this, but if we betray nature, it's obvious to those looking at us. Hey, something's not right. And I don't have to go into a, to a social discussion about how that's obvious in the world today. But people know, hey, a man's a man, a woman's a woman. But Paul says, spiritually speaking, if a man is not doing his spiritual role, if a woman is not doing her spiritual role, it's just as egregious as if externally we're doing something that's not right. That's a big deal, isn't it? Men, we are here to nurture, protect, and boldly lead, as in we don't wait for somebody else to do it. We step up and do our job. Even when it's difficult, even when it's challenging, even when it's scary, we step up and lead because that's what our God-given purpose and calling is. Well, I don't want to. Well, you're called to. Nurture, protect, and boldly lead for the good of the body, for the glory of God. Women, devote, care, and fully support. Even when maybe it looks like that support isn't warranted. You're going to stand there. You're going to stand in. You're going to support and care for and devote to because you realize that is the gift that God has given you. And if we all do that together, we can reflect the full, complete, glory of God that's how we build up the body but it takes all of us working together whether we're married or separated whatever our story is you as a man you as a woman you have a unique role to play it starts in homes of course but it always brings back to the church and comes back to how we all individually come into the body and say, I want to make sure I'm not shirking my responsibility as a man as a woman as a body of believers. Paul says all things are lawful, but all things don't edify. We can say, well, this, isn't, this doesn't apply to me. That's for something more serious. It does apply to us, doesn't it? Because this, the, the body of Christ is on the line. So men, women, let's pray for God to lead us in being who he has called us to be, uniquely, fearfully, wonderfully made in his image. The whole picture needs all of us doing our part. And God's worthy of that, isn't he? Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your glory that you've shared with us. Lord, thank you for making it clear that men, we don't tell the whole story on our own. Women don't tell the whole story on their own. We together are called to represent and reflect the glory of God. Uniquely, we do this in our marriages, but we also do this as men and women who come together in the church from different worlds, different parts of the world, different parts of the community. This is a part of what it means to consider others above ourselves, to consider why it's important that I do this because it impacts somebody else. Lord, I pray for that one that has a difficult in their marriage as they want to serve you and honor you at home. But I'll pray for everybody here tonight that wants to be a part of a functioning body of Christ. And as men and women, each person plays a crucial role. Help us to delight in you and find our purpose and allow you to lead us and guide us and use us 
in a way that glorifies you. We are all together on an evil playing field, but we're also all subordinate to each other, serving one another in honor of you. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.